Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 51, the Byzantine Golden Age. There can only be one emperor. In our last episode, we finished with John Simiskis and a handful of co-conspirators scaling the side of the royal palace, sneaking in through the window, and viciously beating and butchering the emperor. John Simiskis was now the emperor, but what made him kill his own uncle in such a vicious and brutal manner? In Nikephorus' later years, he made a few decisions that alienated his military friends. For starters, he punished the commander who captured Antioch, and in the case of his nephew, he dismissed him from the front lines and sent him home after he won a series of military victories in the east. It seemed as though Nicephorus had turned on all his allies in the army and was punishing those who succeeded the most. Just to give you an idea of how much John Simiskis hated his uncle, on the night of the assassination, it is said that John was so angry that he furiously beat him in front of the other generals. He ripped chunks of hair from his head and patches from his beard and cursed and punched and kicked. Finally, he plunged his sword into the emperor's chest. The emperor was dead. And shortly after, the Varangian guard came rushing in to save the emperor, only to see him dead on the ground with a group of men standing around with bloody swords. Their boss was dead, but they also liked getting paid, so the Varangian guard naturally submitted to the man with the bloody sword and swore to protect him. Now these guards weren't pushovers. They were some of the strongest, most feared warriors in the realm. The Varangian Guard were bloodthirsty berserker warriors who stood taller than most men, broader than most men, and loved to carry axes into battle. For these guards weren't Roman soldiers at all. They were Vikings sworn to protect the Roman Emperor. John Simiskis was a member of the famous Kurkuas family. They were famous for their military campaigns in the east. One of the reasons for their successes is they came from there. John Simiskis was an Armenian who grew up in the east and spent his whole life fighting there. For the last 250 years, the Armenians were under constant harassment from the Arab conquerors and later the Muslim emirates that popped up in their place. The military successes of John Simiskis were so great that the Roman Empire, for the first time in centuries, was taking back land that hadn't been in the empire since the initial Arab conquests. The Romans were back in Syria and now into the Fertile Crescent in what we would call modern-day Iraq. There is no doubt that John Simiskis was one of the best emperors of the Byzantine Empire. Unfortunately, he was already getting old in life when he took the throne, so his reign wasn't long. He was only in office for seven years. The first thing he did was find someone to blame the coup on, 
Someone had to pay for this crime. The ones to take the fall were a couple of nobodies. They could have been the ones on the roof of the palace who lowered the ropes, or the guards who were paid to look the other way, or maybe they were just messengers who passed notes back and forth between the conspirators. Either way, these two men were charged with killing the emperor and duly executed for their crimes. The emperor gave up his private estates in the eastern provinces to poor peasants and funded hospitals for lepers. This donation of private property proved his Christian piety, but also demonstrated his dedication to the well-being of the empire and all of its subjects. On Christmas Day, 969 CE, inside the Hagia Sophia, Patriarch Polyuctus crowned John Simiskes Emperor of the Roman Empire. The very next year, in 970 CE, the emperor married Romanus II's sister, Theodora, making him the legal uncle of the boy emperors. Now that his position in the royal family was secure, he banished Theophano, who was his sister-in-law and mother of the child emperors. The official story was she had been behind the assassination of Nicephorus, but it was more likely an excuse just to get her out of the palace. Events happened fast after Simiski's coronation. The major rivers of the Black Sea, the Danube and the Dnieper, acted as highways to the northern sections of Europe. And far north, a new powerful tribe had set its targets on the riches of Constantinople. The Kievan Rus were growing in strength and numbers and were constantly raiding down the rivers. They made it to the northern borders of Bulgaria and plundered the farmland of the Danube Valley. Now they were on the doorstep of the Roman Empire, while raiding expeditions were ravaging the countryside of Thrace. No matter how imminent the threat was on his border, John Simiskis had to fight the urge to take to the field and lead the charge against the Kievan Rus. His claim to power was based mostly on the fact that he was there. Leaving now would open him to usurpers. So he sent his most trusted general to deal with the invaders. This proved to work in his favor. Trusting his generals to do a good job on the field, Emperor Simiskis was able to successfully rule the empire and fight off the invasions at the exact same time. In 971 CE, only a year after fighting off the Kievan Rus, Emperor John Simiskis was faced with revolt in the east. His cousin had managed to escape from prison and raised a small army to challenge the rule of the emperor. Bardas Phocas the Younger, John Simiskis' cousin, snuck into Thrace and raised an army, which was fairly easy for him to do since he came from the very respected family of Phocas. Soldiers had no trouble pledging their loyalty to him, knowing full well they were committing treason, which was a capital offense. Emperor John Simiskis didn't want to engage in a civil war, not unless he was forced to. Besides, he already had huge plans to invade Bulgaria and defeat the looming threat of the Kievan Rus. The Balkans were quickly degenerating into chaos with another threat in Serbia. He needed to end this revolt fast, 
and with as little bloodshed as possible. With all of this trouble, it meant that the emperor was probably going to have to remain in the palace instead of going out to lead his troops. For a general emperor, this was hard to do, but Simiskis was smart enough to know he had no alternative. While Bardas focused, the younger's army camped in Thrace, spies and agents of the royal palace were dressed as beggars and sent to the traitor's camp. Here the spies secretly spread the word from soldier to soldier. Emperor Simiskis forgives you and will allow all soldiers fighting with Bardas Focus to return to their post in the army. There will be no punishment for anyone. These spies continued through the camp for a week before the army slowly dwindled down to nothing. By the time Bardas Focus realized his army had deserted him, a general came in and seized the remaining traitors. The Focus family had betrayed Simiskis for the final time, and he ordered everyone to be put to death. A couple of days later, the emperor calmed down and downgraded the punishment to mere blinding. He wanted revenge, but he wasn't a monster. However, the emperor slept on it again and decided to lower the sentence even further. He ultimately decided to banish the Focus family to a small island in the Aegean Sea. Chios, to be precise. Fun fact. Chios is actually a very nice island where people spend their vacation. So don't feel bad for Bardas Focus when you hear that he was banished. Think of it more as a sentence to a permanent five-star vacation. Now, during this turbulent time in the Balkans, trouble was brewing in Italy. The Holy Roman Emperor was butting his army up against the Byzantine soldiers. And as push came to shove, the Holy Roman Emperor had one request. He wanted an imperial bride from the Roman Empire to marry his son and heir this was something that Nicephorus scoffed at and rudely declined. But not John Simiskis. He was able to negotiate with the growing empire in the West, despite them claiming the same title. Emperor John Simiskis arranged a marriage between his niece, Theophano, and the prince of the Holy Roman Empire, Otto II. And this arrangement brought peace between the two empires in Italy and provided Otto with the legitimacy he desired. On April 14th, 972, Theophano married Otto II in a church in Rome. The Pope himself crowned Theophano and declared her the Empress in the West. This was the first step in building stronger relations between the Western and Eastern empires but it did very little to appease the churches. Both sides saw themselves as adversaries and wanted nothing more than to inherit the other. The newlywed couple had a child shortly after, Otto III, which made John Simiskis the uncle of the next Holy Roman Emperor. Spring of 972 CE also brought an opportunity for John Simiskis that he didn't have for a couple of years now. He was able to leave the royal palace and join his soldiers at Adrianople. He finally had the time to launch his raid into Bulgaria, 
and get revenge on the Kievan Rus. They were finally going to pay for invading the Empire and thinking they could just hang out in Bulgaria without any reprisal. He was so eager to march his men to war that he left early in the season. It must have been early March, for it was before Easter, and no one expected an invasion at this time. Because most armies waited for Easter, the passes into Bulgaria were completely undefended. John Simiskis marched his army through the mountains until they came to a spot that overlooked the Kievan Rus camp. They could see the enemy below, and none of the Kievan Rus had the slightest idea that the Romans marched unchallenged into Bulgaria and now sat on the hill watching them. When the Romans moved in to attack, there was very little time for the Kievan Rus to form up. The battle took place on the edge of the river. The fighting is said to have gone on for a long time, as both sides fought, but neither gained the upper hand over the other. It is as if the two armies formed a shield wall, collided in battle, but were so evenly stacked that no part of the shield wall ever broke. These two armies pushing against each other with all their strength trying to break through the other. Swords and spears trying to stab over the edge of the shield wall, but seldomly finding a target. Sooner or later, one of the armies was going to get tired and quit. Emperor Simiskis saw this as well, and ordered his personal guard to charge the enemy, breaking through the Kievan Rus line. Very quickly, the Kievan line broke down and collapsed. The soldiers turned and ran, and at that moment, Emperor John Simiskis gave the order. He sent the cavalry in to chase down the enemy. There were almost no survivors, as the Byzantines chased down and skewered the Kievan soldiers, never giving up the chase until they made it to the walls of the nearest city. When John Simiskis and his Roman army stood outside of the walls of Preslav, the Kievan Rus were demoralized and broken, and they barely put up an effort to defend the city. The Romans broke through the gates and stormed the occupied Bulgarian city. The Rus ran and hid in the citadel and refused to surrender. The emperor shouted demands to the Rus inside, but they refused to come out. And after threatening to burn the citadel to the ground, the Rus finally surrendered. And among their hostages was none other than the Tsar of Bulgaria, Tsar Boris. With the two emperors meeting face to face, the situation could have gone in either direction. But John Simiskis treated the Tsar with mutual respect. Emperor Simiskis explained to Boris that the Romans were only in Bulgaria to liberate the Bulgars from the Kievan Rus and their leader, Sviatoslav. He should not fear the Romans, but rather help them expel the barbarians. Now it's hard to say whether or not Tsar Boris believed the emperor, because right after pledging his sincerity to the Tsar, Emperor Tsimiskis renamed the capital after himself and then marched his army north. Now the Rus were still hiding out in one city and their leader, Sviatoslav, was there waiting for them. John Tsimiskis marched his army up to the walls of Dorostolon, which is located on the edge of the Danube River. 
With the entire Roman army standing outside of the walls, Sviatoslav could see with his own eyes that he didn't stand a chance. If they opened the gates to fight, they would be overrun. Yet the Kievan Rus had a navy. They didn't need to stay and fight. Unfortunately for them, a fleet of Byzantine warships sailed up the Danube surrounding the city from the water. And each ship was mounted with Greek fire and blew flames into any ship that came out to fight them. With the river basically on fire, there was nothing left to do but wait for winter and hope they could break the siege. For 65 days, the Romans laid siege to Dorostolon. The Kievan Rus were unable to escape. It seemed like sooner or later they were going to face the cold steel of the Romans or the hot flames of Greek fire. Simiskis grew impatient and ordered his army to assault the walls. Thousands of soldiers tried to scale them with ladders, but the Kievan archers fought them off, killing hundreds. This was proving to be a long, drawn-out siege. Inside, the Kievan Rus were growing hungry and desperate. They dragged prisoners of the war to the river and sacrificed them to their gods, but it didn't seem to work. They next took children and drowned them in the Danube, hoping their gods would accept their sacrifice and deliver them from defeat. Again, the gods did not respond. On July 24th, 971 CE, John Simiskis pretended to withdraw the siege. He ordered his men to look unorganized and morally defeated as they slowly moved away from the city. He even had some get up and run. To the eyes of Sviatoslav, watching from the city walls, this looked like good news. His enemies were retreating. Sacrificing all those children in the river must have worked, since the gods lived up to their end of the bargain. It was time for Sviatoslav to live up to his. He ordered his men to rush through the gates and chop down every single Roman soldier they could get their hands on. To the eyes of John Simiskis, his men were carrying out their orders flawlessly. They were still organized and prepared to fight, but their planned maneuvers gave off the impression that they were retreating. The trap was set. And as the city gates opened, and as the city gates opened up, and the Kievan Rus charged through, he smiled as his trap went off. The Roman soldiers turned around and raised their weapons, and formed into a strong offensive line. By the time the charging Rus realized their enemy not only turned around to fight, but was formed up into a battle line, it was too late. The Romans broke through the malnourished and tired Rus and fought them all the way back to the city gates. It was a terrible defeat for Sviatoslav. Even with the gates closed, there were no more soldiers to fight with, and all their supplies were gone. Sviatoslav surrendered to Emperor John Simiskis, and the two men met face to face on the opposite side of the river. Now, in many cases throughout history, the leader would have been humiliated in front of the enemy soldiers before being beheaded. Sviatoslav knew he was taking a risk by paddling across the river to meet the emperor. 
and to his surprise, the Romans treated him with respect. John Simiskis was a soldier himself, and congratulated Sviatoslav for putting up such a good fight. And after talking with each other, they both agreed to release 100% of their prisoners. The Rus were to leave Bulgaria, and never cross into this land again, while at the same time they were to abandon their claims in the Crimea. Sviatoslav was truly moved by the treatment of the Roman Emperor, and they even agreed to return to the old trade agreements from before. This was the beginning of a new Byzantine-Rus relationship. Unfortunately, neither man would live much longer after this meeting, and that's too bad too because it could have brought even more stability to the region and extended the Byzantine Golden Age. When Emperor Simiskis returned to Constantinople, he brought with him Tsar Boris of Bulgaria, and together they paraded through the streets of Constantinople, celebrating the victory against the Kievan Rus and the liberation of Bulgaria. This was quite the celebration which went a long way to impress Tsar Boris. There was probably a part of Simiskis that wanted to prove to Tsar Boris, you can claim to be Caesar, but you are not my equal. The parade ended in the great Hagia Sophia. The Emperor John Simiskis stood and proclaimed Bulgaria an official province of the Roman Empire. He announced that the Tsar was to become a magistrate in Bulgaria and serve the Emperor. In the same speech, he abolished the Bulgarian church and said that all bishops in Bulgaria would answer directly to the Patriarch in Constantinople. In 972 CE, John Simiskis continued his campaigns in the east, making it as far as Mosul in modern-day Iraq. In this new campaign in the east, John was successful, but a new Muslim threat was growing in the east. This time it came out of Egypt. This wasn't the first time the Byzantine soldiers encountered this new band of Muslims, but it was the first time it came from Egypt. This new band of Muslim warriors was Shia, and they called themselves the Fatimids. In 975 CE, John Simiskis led another campaign into Syria, this time with the intention of annexing the entire province. The Fatimids were a force to be reckoned with, but so far they were further south. So John launched a full-scale invasion. His army marched from Sicilia and Antioch and pushed further south. His army was too big to fight against, and most cities surrendered immediately. The cities that didn't surrender were besieged and quickly overrun. Some of these cities were undefended, and others put up a strong fight. But at the end of the first campaign, John Simiskis had completely annexed Lebanon, parts of Syria, and even northern Israel. The cities of Beirut, Nazareth, Baalbek, Damascus, and Sidon. When the Romans finally came up to the Fatimids, who were far more organized, they were stopped in their tracks. John Simiskis, on his first campaign into the Abbasid Caliphate, nearly captured the Holy Land and returned a lot of the old imperial lands to the empire. Unfortunately for John Simiskis, on his way home from the campaign, he fell ill. He made it back to Constantinople, but it is said that he was barely breathing as they rode through the gates. 
On January 10, 976, Emperor John Smitskis breathed his last breath. He was the emperor for only five years, but he did more than most do in a lifetime. Because he did not have a son, the throne was passed down to Basil II, son of Romanus II. The empire stretched right into the Holy Land for the first time in over 300 years. Bulgaria was now a province of the empire. Well, sort of. The western half of Bulgaria wasn't exactly happy to be part of the empire, and they did pretty much everything they could to break away from them. In fact, the fighting was about to get so out of control in Bulgaria that the next reigning emperor was going to have to send his army into Bulgaria for several decades. The next Roman emperor is the longest serving emperor in all of the 2,000 years of Roman history. Basil II, or Basil the Bulgar Slayer. He's one of my favorite emperors in Roman history, and we can't wait to talk about him. But before we get to Basil II, we feel we have to step back from the narrative. You see, a lot's happened outside of the empire. New powers have emerged that are about to collide with the Byzantines. And before we tell you the story about Basil the Bulgar Slayer, we have to tell you about all of the actors in motion. In this episode, we have discussed the Varangian Guard, the Holy Roman Empire, the Kievan Rus, and the Fatimid Caliphate. And I'm sure you know who these people are. But unless you're listening to history podcasts all the time, you might not know a lot about all four groups. In the next few episodes, we're going to do origin stories for the Vikings, who sailed down the rivers to Constantinople and became the personal bodyguards of the Roman emperors. We will talk about the formation of a new German superpower in the West, called the Holy Roman Empire. There will be an origin story for the Kievan Rus, who ultimately settled Kiev in modern-day Ukraine, as well as found the Great Russian Empire. And before we return to the last episode of the Byzantine Golden Age, we will explain the origin story of the Fatimids, who controlled North Africa and challenged the Abbasid Caliphate. This line of noble Arabs traced their lineage back to the daughter of Muhammad, Fatima, and her husband Ali. They were Ismaili Shia and controlled an empire that stretched from the Atlantic Ocean across North Africa and Sicily. And in 969 CE, the Fatimids conquered Egypt and made it their new capital. Stay tuned for our next episode where we go back several centuries and explain the origin story of the Vikings. So I do have one quick question, and that is in regards to the parade where Emperor Tsimiskis and Tsar Boris were parading through Constantinople, and they ended up in the Hagia Sophia. And then in a speech, the emperor got up and declared that Bulgaria would no longer be its own empire. They were a province. The Tsar was no longer a Tsar. He worked for the emperor, and all the bishops now had to report to the patriarch. Do you think... Boris knew this was going to happen, or he was just sitting in the audience and heard the emperor get up and say all these crazy things and was blindsided and didn't expect the emperor to betray him? I'm kind of leaning to being blindsided. 
I, I, I know he probably suspected something was going to go down because I don't know if he knew it was going to be limited that much where practically everything's taken away. They have almost no sovereignty whatsoever. Yeah, I think he was blindsided. I do think he probably had a feeling that something like this was going to happen because when Simiskis liberated that one city from the Kievan Rus and then made all those deals with the Tsar, he did kind of rename the city after himself and then march away. So he probably saw that the Emperor was kind of not loyal to him. You know, that could be writing on the wall. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> so you might say they were liberated, but really what they really got was a new master. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. <laughs>